Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. In 1922, when Howard Carter opened the tomb of Tutankhamun, the pharaoh's treasures returned to the world of the living. Among the glittering trinkets, two items in particular stood out. They were a pair of trumpets, instruments used by ancient musicians. These trumpets might have belonged to the king personally, or they might have belonged to an official. Perhaps a general or an officer donated these trumpets to the king's burial. Either way, this pair of instruments emerged, along with many other items, in the Carter excavations. The two trumpets are made of bronze and silver, respectively. They have long stems, or reeds, and their bells, the part from which the sound emerges, are shaped like lotus flowers. This design is standard, we see it in Egyptian art. Trumpets like these show up in the hands of soldiers, who play them on parade and use them to guide the troops. The silver trumpet was in the king's burial chamber, the bronze trumpet was in a chest. They were in fragile condition, but after conservation and restoration, they seemed relatively okay. Which is how, on the 16th of April, 1939, the trumpets of Tutankhamun sounded for the first time in modern history. In 1939, the BBC organised a performance of these trumpets. This was broadcast around the world, with an estimated audience of 150 million listeners. As of 2021, it is the first and only recorded performance of these instruments. For your education and enjoyment, I present a part of that recording here. The trumpeter begins his performance, starting with the silver instrument. And now the two trumpets will be blown by bandsman James Tapper, who is here by permission of the colonel and officers of the 11th Prince Albert's own Hussars. Trumpets of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun, Lord of the Crown, King of the South and North, Son of Bray. That was the silver trumpet, and you can hear there are a variety of notes available. The trumpeter gets a high, a middle, and a low note. Apparently the high note was quite difficult to reach, 
and the low note did not travel very far, so maybe the middle note was the primary sound for this instrument. Next, we get the bronze trumpet. Notice how this one sounds a bit sharper. That was a sample of the Trumpets of Tutankhamun. You can hear the full performance on the BBC website, just follow the link in the episode description. The Trumpets of Tutankhamun probably appeared in military contexts. Soldiers or officers would blow the trumpets, signalling their troops to march. Perhaps they communicated instructions, like turn left, march quickly, or charge or they used them on parade to add grandeur to a ceremony. We do not know exactly. The trumpets found in Tutankhamun's tomb are, to date, the only ones to survive from Pharaonic Egypt. Perhaps in future we will get more examples. For now, they provide a lingering sense of the king's soldiers marching off to war, Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 142, Wars in the North. Today we explore a curious chapter in the reign of Tutankhamun, a military strike in the lands of Canaan and Syria. On behalf of the pharaoh, the Egyptian army wages war. We see this war recorded in the tomb of a general. This episode is supported by David Dunn, who donated generously to the podcast. Thanks to David's kindness, the soldiers of Egypt are equipped. The metal workers produce arrowheads and spear tips. The woodworkers make shields. The leather workers make sandals. And the hairdressers crop the hair and circumcise the youths. The troops of the pharaoh prepare for war. They are funded by David. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. May Sakmet and Monchu, the Lady and Lord of War, bring blessings to your house. Please enjoy the show. The year was 1340 BCE, give or take. It was Regnal Year 4 under the majesty of Neb Keperu Ra, Tut Ankh Amun. The king of Egypt, Tutankhamun, was 13 years old, approximately. Although he was young, Tutankhamun and his government had established their authority. They had abandoned the city of Aket Aten, Amana, and returned to Memphis in the north. They had launched new projects to reopen temples and restore old monuments. Throughout the country, stonemasons fixed damage on the temple walls and added new shrines and structures. Sculptors and metal workers fashioned new statues for the divine beings. 
Farmers delivered supplies for offerings, and artists prepared new images of the pharaoh and the gods. Up and down the Nile Valley, thousands of workers toiled on Tutankhamun's projects. Beyond the temples, though, another group of artisans was doing an important job. In open-air courtyards, thousands of craftsmen prepared furnaces and foundries. These were metal workers. They were making weapons. You see, Tutankhamun's government was planning a war. For most of the 20th century, historians assumed that Tutankhamun was relatively inactive on the military front. The king was young, and he did not seem like a conquering type. There were no records to suggest that he led or organized any major campaigns. Even the discovery of his tomb in 1922 did not shake the image of Tutankhamun as a young, idle ruler. Recently, that picture is starting to change. For the past 30-odd years, scholars working in Luxor have documented the monuments of Tutankhamun. A team of researchers, led by Professor Raymond Johnson, has excavated and studied traces of this king. Along the way, this team have uncovered blocks from Tutankhamun's lost monuments. And they have found something quite interesting. In the course of their work, Johnson's team have discovered pieces of a shrine. It seems that Tutankhamun built a small temple at the city of Waset, Thebes. That shrine had decorations with elaborate scenes. And among those scenes, the team found images of battle. According to these blocks, one of the king's temples showed a massive scene of war. The reconstructed scenes show Tutankhamun in his chariot. He wears the blue crown and holds a bow and arrow. He rides his war cart at full speed, trampling enemies beneath the wheels and the hooves of his horses. In these scenes, the king is not alone. Beside him and around him, Egyptian chariots ride in support. The elite warriors of Egypt, riding their war carts, charge against the enemy. They and the king smash the foe aside, beating them down and driving them from the field. As you can imagine, this scene is an image of victory, a glorious day for the young king of Egypt. It is an impressive image. Although many blocks are missing, enough pieces survive to hint at a lavish scene of war. These blocks beg the question, did Tutankhamun go to battle? It is unclear whether these images depict a real event or something more ideal. Egyptian kings often appear in art as warriors. They destroy their foes and perform great feats of skill and daring. Most of these scenes show an ideal, a fancy image of the all-powerful ruler. But even if these images exaggerate some details, the basic idea could still be valid. In fact, there is some evidence for Tutankhamun going to war. You see, besides the walls of temples, we also have records from one of the king's generals. A man of combat, a man who would lead Tutankhamun's troops. He left us some clues. In episode 140, we met a man named Horemheb. Horemheb was a high-ranking official in Tutankhamun's government. He served the king as the, quote, 
General of the Generals of the Lord of the Two Lands. In other words, Horemheb was the commander-in-chief of Tutankhamun's armies. If the pharaoh wanted a war, Horemheb was the one who would do it. Fortunately, this general left a lot of information about his job. The commander Horemheb, or Horus in festival, was a wealthy and influential man. He commemorated that status by commissioning a tomb, an elaborate tomb, in which he would display his power and his deeds. In the process, Horemheb created a valuable record of life in Tutankhamun's government. According to his tomb, Horemheb held dozens of titles. I won't list all of them, but I will give a sample, a little taster, to get a sense of this man's influence. On the walls of his monument, Horemheb appeared as, quote, the favorite of the king in every place, the one who replaces the king in every place, aka the king's deputy, the fan-bearer on the right of the king, the general of the lord of the two lands, the great general or supreme general, the overseer of all divine offices, the overseer of all works of the king, the king's messenger or diplomat at the head of his army to the northern and southern lands, and the one who attended his lord upon the battlefield on this day of smiting the Easterners. End quote. As you can see, Horemheb was involved in many royal projects. He represented the king acting as his deputy. He commanded soldiers and led diplomatic embassies. He organized temples managing their people and their business. And he attended the king on the day of smiting the Easterners. This last title is interesting. It suggests that Horemheb accompanied Tutankhamun on a day of battle. Apparently, the Egyptian soldiers faced off against Setetiu. This is a generic term that can mean nomadic people living in the Sinai or further east in Canaan. Setetiu doesn't tell us much specifically, but it does suggest that Tutankhamun went to battle at least once in his life. For historians trying to reconstruct the king's career, that is a start. Horemheb, the supreme general of Egypt's army, recorded many titles in his tomb. Columns of hieroglyphs all over the walls conveyed the jobs he did in life. Unfortunately, Horemheb's tomb is partly destroyed, so we are missing some of the texts related to his work. Fortunately, we still have many images. Along with his title, Horemheb also used his tomb as a canvas. All around, the walls bear images related to his life and his career. There are standard scenes, of course, Horemheb receiving offerings and worshipping the gods. But there are also images of the general celebrating his victories. A series of murals adorning the walls show Horemheb in the aftermath of war. From these, we can get a sense of the campaigns that he might have led on behalf of Tutankhamun. Our first scene shows Horemheb and his soldiers gathering up prisoners. This scene seems to take place after a battle, or a series of battles. We see the collection of prisoners, captives, from multiple regions and groups. 
There are captives from the south, from the west, from the north, and the east. Basically, the mural is condensing several different events into one scene. But even though it's putting things all together, we do get some valuable information. In the mural, Egyptian troops gather prisoners from Syria, Canaan, Libya, and Nubia, aka Wawat and Kush. The captives march in ranks, wearing their local costumes. Egyptian troops guard them, and scribes tally up the number of foes. At the right of the scene, the general Horemheb oversees his win. Horemheb appears as an enormous figure, towering over the rest. He wears a pleated robe of the finest linen, with beautiful stitching on the hem. His wig is long, down to his shoulders, and he clutches a wooden staff. The general appears as a stereotypical official of the late 18th dynasty, a well-dressed man of power and prestige. In his finest clothing, Horemheb towers over the scene and watches the proceedings. It is classic stuff. As I mentioned, the prisoners come from different regions. Today, I will focus on the Easterners. Horemheb's tomb shows a variety of people from Canaan and Syria. They wear distinct outfits and have specific hairstyles to identify. One group, for example, wear short kilts and long beards with shoulder-length hair. They wear skull caps, cloth wrapped around and covering the tops of their heads. Another group seem to be Syrians or northern Canaanites. Instead of kilts, they wear long robes down to their ankles. Shawls or ponchos drape over their shoulders, and they also have long beards and skull caps. In a nice detail, one of these men wears a waist pouch, a little bag tied to his belt. It's a cute touch that I quite like. Although these prisoners appear in distinct costumes, the faces are all similar. This group bears a strong resemblance to other images of Canaanites and Syrians from 18th dynasty tombs. So we are probably dealing with people from that region. Individuals from the north and the east, in the modern lands of Syria and Lebanon. In other words, they might be captives from the edge of Egypt's empire. Which begs the question, who was Horemheb fighting, and why was he there? The tomb of Horemheb contains a wealth of historical information. Even though the prisoners are anonymous today, we still have hieroglyphs recording some events. Horemheb commissioned texts to adorn the walls of his tomb. Some of these survive, and they give a clue to the reasons for his wars. Commemorating his achievements, Horemheb described his work in Canaan and Syria. According to him, the general did the following. Quote, he, Horemheb, was dispatched as the king's messenger to the limits of the eastern horizon. He returned after he had triumphed, his achievement having taken place. No land could stand against him. He overawed them in a moment. Horemheb's name was renowned even in the land of the Hittites when he travelled northwards. End quote. The messenger of the king, his deputy and general. Horemheb tells his audience about his success. 
Basically, the general went to the limits of the empire on behalf of King Tutankhamun. And he was so successful that even the Hittites knew of his deeds. We will meet the Hittites next episode, but suffice to say, this is one heck of a boast. Horemheb, supreme commander of Egypt's soldiers, went to war in Canaan and Syria. He and his troops achieved their goals and defeated their foes. They returned to Egypt and brought captives with them. Of course, having won a victory, Horemheb and his warriors celebrated. And having captured so much plunder, they presented their trophies to the king. In the next scenes, Horemheb shows how he brought the wealth of the east to lay at the feet of Tutankhamun. We will continue to explore Horemheb's victories after a quick break. See you in a moment. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Chapter 2 Sometime in his reign, King Tutankhamun sent an army north. Egyptian troops marched into Canaan and Syria, where they did battle with local communities. The Egyptians apparently triumphed and brought back scores of prisoners and piles of treasure. When they did so, the general Horemheb commemorated the event. Having won his war, Horemheb returned to the palace of Tutankhamun. He came before the pharaoh to present his victory and offer gifts for the lord of the two lands. Once again, Horemheb recorded these events on the walls of his tomb. Another scene in Horemheb's monument shows him at Tutankhamun's court. The scene begins on the right, where the pharaoh sits upon the throne. Tutankhamun and his wife, Ankh-Esen-Amun, sit beneath a canopy to watch the ceremony. The king and queen wear long robes of fine linen, translucent and cool. They wear sandals and rest their feet on cushioned stools. Ankh-Esen-Amun holds a cup, maybe filled with wine, and she leans back in her chair. The royal couple seem to be comfortable. Unfortunately, the top part of this scene is missing, so we just have the waists and legs of the couple. But we know it is them. A pair of cartouches just in front of the king has traces of Tutankhamun's name. Somebody re-carved that cartouche later with the name of a different ruler, but archaeologists studying these blocks can still see the traces of Tutankhamun. So we know it is him. Anyway. Tutankhamun and his queen sit enthroned beneath their canopy. Before them, a royal herald emerges to proclaim the pharaoh's words. 
The herald stands on a ramp, leading from the throne down to the ground. But he is not looking at Tutankhamun or the queen. Instead, he bows deeply at the waist, giving honour to the man who approaches the throne. Horemheb, the victorious general, comes before Tutankhamun to present his victory and his gifts. The supreme general has long almond-shaped eyes and a straight nose. His lips are full with a somber expression. Again, he is dressed immaculately, a fine linen robe with elaborate folds and layers. He wears a long wig which is carved in fine detail. You can see the strands or ringlets which made up the hair. Today the paint is gone, but the wig was probably black, and Horemheb himself would have worn dark eyeliner protecting his eyes. We can't be sure, but other scenes from the 18th dynasty show royal officials with precise, crisp eyeliner. So I like to imagine Horemheb, the supreme general, rocking that guyliner look. The general stands before the throne, with his arms raised high. Servants gather round, holding up necklaces or collars. These collars, called shebiu, are a tradition called the gold of praise. The gold of praise was a reward that kings gave to loyal officials. We see the gold of praise in tombs throughout the 18th dynasty. Powerful men commemorated the day when they received these necklaces. Well, Horemheb was the new recipient of this prestigious gift. Horemheb receives the gold of praise. Behind the general, we see the reason for his reward. A parade of captives follows Horemheb to the court. They come from the north, and they wear elaborate costumes. The prisoners seem to be powerful, high-ranking men, and they probably represent the ruling class of a defeated tribe or city. What makes us say that? Well, the Egyptians bring all of their prisoners to the pharaoh. And it's not just the men, but the women and the children too. Horemheb brings a long train of captives along with their families. It seems like the Egyptians defeated the rulers of a city or community. And after their victory, Horemheb brought the entire ruling group back to Egypt. This kind of mass kidnapping does happen occasionally in the records of the ancient Near East. Perhaps Horemheb's troops apprehended a large group of rebels in the wake of battle. They took their prisoners and their families to the court of the pharaoh. Now, these people appear in Horemheb's tomb. And to show them off, the artists making this scene pulled out all of the stops. These captives are fascinating. For one thing, they appear with a lot of detail. Instead of long ranks of identical figures, we get a mix of men, women, and children. They appear in a variety of postures, and make gestures to convey certain points. In one spot, a woman carries her child on her shoulder, and another child in a pouch or carrier. The first child has one leg on each side of the mother's neck. The second child pokes its head out of the pouch, and rests one hand on the side. These details add life to the scene. Instead of a generic row of prisoners, we get a sense of real families, taken from their homes and brought to Egypt. Which obviously is not nice, but artistically, it is fascinating. 
Horemheb and his troops drag the prisoners before the throne. Tutankhamun and Ankes and Amun receive the gifts and praise Horemheb's victory. After that, the scene ends. We do not know what happened next. Presumably, many of these families went to royal farms and estates to labour for the king. People with crafts and skills might have served in the workshops. The leaders, perhaps, enjoyed some freedom at the Egyptian court. We do not know, but this is how other Egyptian kings treated their captives. The poor went to the fields, the skilled went to the factories, the powerful went to the palace. Horemheb and his lord Tutankhamun might have done the same. Beyond that, we cannot say for sure. Horemheb and his soldiers marched into Canaan, or Syria. They defeated enemies and brought back captives. And returning to Egypt, the general presented his victory to the pharaoh Tutankhamun. With that, Horemheb, supreme commander of Egypt's armies, made his king a victorious ruler. But, as I've described it, this was Horemheb's victory, not Tutankhamun's. After all, the artistic scenes show the great general winning these wars himself. The king is absent, and only appears in the ceremonies after the battle. So, can we really say that Tutankhamun was a triumphant pharaoh? Did he actually participate in any of this, or did he leave it to the generals? I think there is a good chance that Tutankhamun participated in these events. Yes, the king was young, but he wasn't a child anymore. At 13 years, or maybe older, he could easily have commanded Horemheb to go forth and do battle. And it's not impossible that Tutankhamun went on one of these campaigns, at least once in his life. The tomb of Horemheb, which gives us these fabulous images, does make reference to a battle that the king himself attended. Going back to the start of the episode, Horemheb mentioned, quote, attending his lord, the king, upon the battlefield, on this day of smiting the Easterners. That could be a piece of propaganda, but it is extremely specific, so it could be a record of a real event. We also have those battle scenes from a lost temple in Thebes. Although they are probably propaganda, it is possible that they contain some real truth. We can't be sure, but Tutankhamun might have participated in battle, at least once in his life. If he did, the king probably fought from the rear, watching events rather than battling in person. At the very least, he would have been well protected. If Tutankhamun was on the battlefield, you could bet that a hundred chariots went with him. If so, then maybe the images from his now lost temple have some truth after all. The reign of Tutankhamun was not peaceful, after all. Today, scholars are increasingly sure that the king and his government organized and instigated wars. Egyptian soldiers probably did march east to Canaan and Syria. And there, on the edges of the empire, they attacked the pharaoh's enemies. Overseeing these events, the general Horemheb gained prestige and status and he commemorated these events on the walls of his tomb. Today, the records of Horemheb provide a valuable sense of life and war 
in the reign of the boy king. We will come back to Horemheb's tomb in a couple episodes. You see, the general also made reference to campaigns down in the south. The Egyptians might have led attacks into Wawat and Kush, the lands that we call Nubia. We will explore those in a couple of episodes, but first, I want to take a detour. Next time, we explore events beyond the borders of Egypt. You see, while Horemheb waged his wars in Canaan and Syria, another power was rising to challenge him, and the Egyptians started to encounter these people on the field of battle. Among the dozens of prisoners that appear in Horemheb's tomb, there is one family that is distinctive. Alongside the various Canaanites and Syrians, there is a small group who do not match the rest. A man, a woman, and a child appear in the scene bearing unique costumes and features. Their hair is different, with a specific style. Their faces are distinct, with prominent features. They wear unusual clothing and jewellery, and they stand slightly apart from the other, more generic people. Put together, they seem to come from a previously unknown land. As far as we can tell, this family are Hittites, a people or group whom we have not yet had the chance to meet. Well, it is time to change that. Join me soon for episode 143, in which we visit the Kingdom of the Hittites. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. My extra thanks go to Linda, Terry, TJ, and Jason, my priest-level supporters on Patreon. Folks, you are too generous. Your gifts help the temples honor the gods and help the soldiers conquer their enemies. I am in your debt, and I thank you. The music for this episode is by Jeffrey Goodman, whose War Song of Horus and Sakmet played in the middle and the end of the episode. Also, music by Bettina Joy de Guzman, which played at the beginning of the episode as a special composition. My thanks to Jeffrey and Bettina for sharing their music with the podcast. Follow the links in the episode description if you'd like to hear more of these wonderful artists and their compositions. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by Ra Egyptian Skincare. Ra Egyptian has taken on the mission of making the awe-inspiring civilization and history of ancient Egypt tangible through clean, sustainable beauty products. They draw their ingredients and scents directly from ancient Egyptian history, and specifically tailor their products to restore the protective barrier over skin. They source ethically, sustainably, and they use first-press, cold-processed oils from Africa to ensure that their products have the highest possible nutrient levels. Ra Egyptian never tests on animals, and they guarantee the highest quality of the products they make. All products from Ra Egyptian are made in the United States. You can feel and see the difference in their products, and in your own skin. Ra Egyptian has partnered with the History of Egypt podcast for a special offer. 
Listeners can get 30% off their order by visiting the website and using the checkout code EGYPT. Follow the link in the episode description to view Ra Egyptian's wonderful range of products. Then, at the checkout, use the code EGYPT for 30% off your order. My thanks to Ra Egyptian for providing this generous discount. I have been using their products myself, and I have to say, they are lovely. Follow the link in the episode description and use the checkout code EGYPT for 30% off your order. You won't regret it. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.